0: Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded podcast. I'm your host and teacher Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. All right, everybody, I'm going to go ahead and put you on mute and then uh, I'll pray and uh, get us started here. Thank you all for joining me. I think we're in lesson 18 and it's going to be the church at Thyatira, the church at Thyatira, married to multiple gods, married to multiple gods. So let's open up with the word of prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started on this lesson. And I see other people showing up. It's good to see you guys. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for another week, Lord, of life and of breath and of blessing. We've just been through a strong resurrection week, Father, and I pray that everybody had a good week of uh, being able to meditate and focus on one of the greatest miracles in the history of humanity. That is your resurrection, Lord. That is what proves that everything you taught us and everything you said was true. Just ask for your grace upon us, each and every one of us, Lord, that while we're struggling with illness or with, uh, any kind first of all, any kind of physical ailments, mental, emotional ailments, spiritual ailments, Father, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the grace and peace to understand and to give you your process into our lives, Father, and uh, just help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us as we walk through the book of Revelation, Father, step by step, bit by bit, trying to gain as much knowledge as possible, as much of a solid footing as possible. Thank you so much for this time that you give us, Father, and give us your Holy Spirit to open our heart and our mind to your word, for thy word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, beloved, again, welcome to the church at Thyatira tonight. Before I get started, I was having this discussion earlier and in the earlier in the week as well not just with a couple of people but it came up a little bit more often as i went through the week and that is uh, why we're going You know we're taking you know our time going through the book of revelation and uh, i just as i was saying earlier to some of you the thing about it is is that um if you believe that you can just jump on and go through an eight to ten twelve week course and be able to really grasp what revelation teaches then I, I think that's where the problem is. I think that we, we're we taking it too lightly. We're taking it too flippantly. I know that when many churches do teach an 8-10 to 10 week course, it's basically on the one view of Revelation. In other words, you're not dissecting Revelation. You're not studying Revelation word by word, line by line, scripture by scripture. You are getting an overview of the particular view, which is normally the future dispensationalist view. And so what you get is basically a summary, an overall summary of that, uh, of Revelation based on that view. Now, what I'm trying to do here, and it's going to take some time, is to teach you how to actually read Revelation itself so that you are able to decode what it says through the scriptures. In other words, I want you to be able to read the scripture, go through uh, we have to you know take our trek to the Old Testament, come back, compare notes, see where John is saying, okay, I'm going to take what Ezekiel said to make my point here as an example, but I'm also going to tweak it to the situation that we're in now. So We have to be very careful how we treat every single line of the book of Revelation, every single scripture. So that's what I'm trying to accomplish here. We the first time we went through this, we went we did 42 lessons. We were up to 42 lessons and we had only finished chapter 8. We were getting started to jump on to chapter 9. I think this time it's going a little bit quicker. Which is good. I mean, I guess because of the video venue, I don't get as many questions. It doesn't get into that much discussion and I'm able to deliver the majority of the lesson relatively quickly with a few exceptions. So I just want to congratulate you for hanging on as long as you have, for understanding that this is not an undertaking that's to be taken lightly, that's to be taken flippantly or even casually. If you really want to be able to what we're to do what we've said we're going to do here, and that is decode revelation and use the rest of the scriptures to do that to uncover that so that at least at minimal best, whatever we decide about what we're reading, we're on good, solid biblical ground. And that's what I'm trying to be very careful about. It would be very easy for me just to do a quick overview of it. And not give you a lot of in-depth explanation and just say this is just what we believe and why in a few short sentences. But this has been uh, the most rewarding and yet the most comprehensive and difficult Bible study I've ever done. Because I have to be very careful about what I present to you and how I present it. And to make sure that I am on, on solid biblical footing as best I can. Not to say that everybody else isn't. But just to say that I don't come into this Bible study with preconceived notions, I'm trying as hard as I can to let it teach me what to understand and believe about the book of Revelation. So again, this is just to say, thanks for hanging in. I believe the rewards for sticking to it are gonna be great, are going to be um, in fact magnificent. I think it's revolutionized my whole view of the scriptures. I read every other book in the scriptures in the Bible now with that same mindset. What did it mean to the people that read it first? How did they understand it? And how do those spiritual principles translate from then all the way till today, which they do? And how do I apply them now in the current situation I'm in? And to close this segment, I'll say that there's no better book in the Bible than the book of revelation when it comes to being the most biblical book in the bible it carries every major doctrine it carries every major pillar of our faith every major statement of our faith it's all in the book of revelation so it's only fitting that being the book that outlines god's plan or god's finalization of the old testament covenant That it would point to also and give us an idea of what the real end time scenario is going to look like when the time comes. And we will definitely get there. If Jesus comes sooner, well, it won't matter. We'll have all the answers instantly when we get there. But uh, anyway, thank you very much for that segment. Now let's uh, go to Revelation chapter 2. So we're actually going to start at uh, verse 18. And it says this. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write... The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, And she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you. According to your deeds But I say to you the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching who have not known The deep things of Satan as they call them. I place no other burden on you nevertheless What you have hold fast till I come He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him I will give authority over the nations And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that is a pretty long scripture and a pretty long letter, comparatively speaking, to the other ones that were written to the other churches. So let's start by talking about a little bit of background so we understand what was going on there culturally and historically and what is it exactly Jesus was addressing when he spoke to them. Now Thyatira was the smallest and least regionally significant of the seven cities of the seven churches, but it was the one that ends up receiving the longest letter from Jesus. The first time Thyatira is mentioned in scripture is in Acts sixteen fourteen. Let me go over there real quick. Acts 16, 14. And it says this. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira was a seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So there we get a citizen or someone who comes from Thyatira who received the word of God and uh, wanted to believe. Here, Paul and Timothy meet Lydia of Philippi on the riverbank with other women during a prayer time. She was already a believer, but after hearing Paul's message, the scripture says God opened her heart. Lydia and her household were all baptized and, he, and uh, she begged Paul and Timothy to reside with them. Now, historically, Thyatira was a city in Asia Minor lying off the main highway between Pergamum to the west and Sardis to the southeast, about 50 miles northeast of Smyrna on a branch of the Hermus River. Today, it is known as uh, the town of Akisar in Turkey. So remember again how the seven churches came or made around in a good solid postal loop where from that point, the word would be disseminated as widely and as quickly as possible. It is thought to be the first first founded as a shrine to the Lydian sun god, Tyrimnus. There were so many sun-based deities abounding in those times that some think this is why Jesus uses the particular designation for himself as having eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze we know that he is real and he outshines all the other false gods and goddesses and he definitely as you can well under- see just by looking around you he outlasted them all dietaira was famous in the ancient world for both its highly organized trade unions actually called cooperatives and for its special technology of producing a purple, that is a Turkish red dye from the matter root, rather than from shellfish. They actually used to try to draw the, the, the dye from, shell, you know, from shellfish from the ocean, but they were able to do that themselves. It is speculated that many of the city's Christians worked in the unions and were required to attend banquets and ceremonies where solar deities, gods, and food sacrificed to idols were commonplace. Fornication may well have been a part of the traditions, but the Christians felt they could infiltrate the pagan culture by being part of these rituals instead of risking their livelihood by boycotting them, as it may seem familiar to you now. Thyatira has only a few remains of temples and other buildings left to it. From 200 AD, the city was wholly Christian, but predominantly montanist. What is a montanist? A Montanist is a segment from within the church that considered itself having a new prophecy. But it was labeled a heresy for its belief that the new prophetic revelations that it was coming up with on its own were believed to supersede and overwrite, even replace, the Bible and the teaching of the apostles, which many false cults and religions do today. We have the same type of idea going on in the LDS Church, uh, in the the, uh, Jehovah Witness Church and many other modern day movements or sects that claim that they have a special knowledge that is not found in the scriptures. We can't confirm it with the scriptures because some other so-called designated prophet has spoken these words and therefore we are left taking their word for it that is from God. Now, <laughs> the thing about it is, is that the Bible is very clear that we don't have to do that when it comes to God's word. When it comes to God's word, he expects us to be able to go back and test these things, examine them to see if these things were true. But the sat- satanic inspired religions and faiths, say no 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 you just have to accept the word of the guy who said it and that's all there is to it they don't i don't have to prove it to you i don't have to provide proof and you would say well who would put up with that who would believe that well unfortunately many 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 of us people even christians do trust the people without ever putting them through the test Without 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 ever testing if what they're saying is actually based on the word of God, in thirteen thirteen A.D. the neighbor the neighboring Muslim metropolis of Manisa took over Thyatira and named it Akasar, which is Arabic for White Castle, and I don't think it has anything to do with the burgers. I'm not sure. And then it was incorporated into the Ottoman Empire back in uh, fourteen twenty five. Now. This is where we see Jesus approach this church as we read as what the son of God, the son of God, he calls himself. It would seem that Jesus had a lot of competition in those days, considering that there were so many other deities and founders of religions that claimed much of the same things after the fact that, Jesus claimed, that the Bible claims for Jesus himself, a virgin birth, miracles, death and resurrection. And I will give you some notable examples. In India, they have a number of messengers who were divinely conceived, and two of them bore the name Krishna or Krishna the Savior note the similarity with jesus christ the savior now krishna was born of a chaste virgin called devaki who on account of her purity was selected to become the mother of god so you can see how they're starting to take up those those characteristics now for themselves because it's kind of hard to compete with the claims of jesus if you don't do that buddha was considered and believed by his followers to have been gotten by god and born of a virgin whose name was maya Long before the Christian era, we read how the divine power called the Holy Ghost descended upon the Virgin Maya. In the ancient Chinese version of the story, the Holy Ghost is called Xingxin. The Siamese Taiwan or Taiwan had a God and Savior who was a virgin born whom they called Kodom. In this very ancient story the beautiful virgin had been informed in advance that she was to become the mother of a great messenger of God and one day while in her usual period of meditation and prayer she was impregnated by divine sunbeams ah kind of like Zeus used to do the Roman or you know the Roman or Greek god when the boy was born he grew up in a remarkable manner becoming a protégé of wisdom and performing miracles when the first Jesuit priest visited China they wrote in the reports that finding a heathen religion in that country, a story of a redeeming savior who was born of a virgin and divinely conceived, the god was said to have been born in 3468 BC, that is before Christ. His name was Lao Tse, and was said to have been born of a virgin, black in complexion, and was said to be as beautiful as a jasper. In Egypt, Long before the Christian era and before any of its doctrine was conceived, the Egyptian people had several messengers of God who were conceived through immaculate conception. Horus was known to all of ancient Egypt as having been born of the virgin Isis, and his conception and birth was considered one of the three great mysteries or mystical doctrines of the Egyptian religion. To them, every incident in connection with the conception and birth of Horus was pictured, sculptured, adored, and worshipped as the ancients of the conception of birth of Jesus is among the Christians today. So you note the similarities there as well. If you go through all in the Roman Catholic churches in different cathedrals, you'll see from the birth of Jesus to his death and resurrection, pictured and adored and glorified and worshipped just like they did Horus in Egypt another egyptian god called ra was also conceived of a virgin even plato the philosopher who was born in athens in 429 bc was believed by the populace to be of divine son of a pure virgin called pericton perictyon perictyony i think sorry it is recorded in the ancient record that the father of plato who was known as eris had been admonished in a spiritual dream to hold pure and sacred the person of his wife Ooh, does that sound familiar until the day, until after the divine conception and birth of the child, that is to come, and would be, this child be conceived, he would be conceived by divine means. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, if this was before Jesus, before the Christian era, where did they get this from? Well, the Old Testament far supersedes most, if not, well, all of these ancient religious writings. And it is full of prophecies concerning the birth of the death, and the resurrection of our true Savior and Messiah, and nobody understands these scriptures better than Satan, better than the devil. He has tried to saturate and deluge the spiritual and historical consciousness of humanity with countless, numerous claims of virgin births, of miracles, and of resurrections. Think about this for the for a moment. If you could prove that thousands of people had an immaculate conception, then what makes Jesus so special? What makes his story so different? What makes his truth so much better or truthful or real than anybody else? All these other gods that were had immaculate conceptions as well. So you can see that he tried to saturate the market so that by the time Jesus shows up, uh, who cares? been there done that we've seen it already but they didn't stick they could not stick there was no historical evidence to allow it to stick as opposed to the story of jesus who is like it or not i don't care who you are in this world today and sure it might be diminishing a bit but the consciousness of jesus christ born to a virgin on christmas day is ingrained in just about anybody you might know they may not like it they may hate it they may not believe it but they sure do know it and there none of those other gods that i mentioned none of those other gods that i talked about have any prominence any kind of importance in the marketplace of scheme of things in today's world whatsoever so keep that in mind how is it that the truth of jesus christ Whether the world, in spite of the world, in in, in spite of their rejection of him, has remained solid and strong thanks to the early church and the Christians that followed. The, The name of Jesus stays absolute. And all these other gods, who's ever heard of them? Unless you go out of your way to study them, you have never heard of them or their story or their immaculate conceptions or their miracles. None of it. Now... There are two that are very popular and are a little better known, not as good as Jesus, but that is Mithras and Tammuz, and they're used by people that are against the gospel or against the 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 truth of the Bible as examples of uh, Immaculate Conception stories. The problem is Satan's efforts have failed miserably, and there's only one person on the planet, again, That the majority recognize as at least knowing that they were born of a virgin as the son of God, whether they want to accept it or not. But I believe that the ones that Jesus was trying to contrast, in other words, Jesus isn't competing with those guys. He, is not, he, he had, feels no need and has no need to compete with all these other gods and goddesses that people are making claims because he knows and he understands that the historical pillar of fact that the resurrection stands on, that his virgin birth, that his life, death, resurrection, that the historical pillar on which he stands on is forever. It cannot be crumbled, it cannot be diminished, it can you can't, nothing you can do about it. And again, it's in the consciousness of humanity ingrained in us, no matter how much you try to push it away. But what he is trying to fight against in the hearts and minds of the people in those days were the Caesars and the emperors who were claiming to be or voted on by the Roman senates. As being sons of God, holy ones, saviors of the world. Now, this is documented historically everywhere in books, in coins of the time, where it had an image of Jesus as, sa- as saying, Son of God, Savior. Right? Images of these. Uh, emperors and caesars all claiming to be born holy sons of god sons of apollo sons of zeus sons of god in some way shape or form and that's where jesus is trying to bring a contrast between himself and the people and and those uh, deities in these times because those were very strongly competing against the hearts and minds of the people why because they were human governors They were human governors. And so when the Christians in the time would deal with these human beings, those human beings could immediately impose taxes, impose tariffs, impose laws, make life miserable for them. So they really had a hard time trying to figure out, okay, well, who's really in charge here? These guys are Jesus. And I think we have that same spiritual problem today. In today's world, we are more focused on our human benefactors our human messiahs our human so-called saviors in the form of one political person or another one political party or another that we have we uh, that our you know loyalties are divided our faith is divided and i see people posting even recently on 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 social media you know i i know jesus is supposed to be in charge i know he's supposed to be in control but i have my doubts I, i don't see it And that's where the people that Jesus is speaking to here were having the same issues because everywhere they looked and everything they did in those days was affected by who they worked for, the unions they worked for. They were expected to toe the line one way or the other and prove their loyalty to Caesar. And so the Christian in those days found themselves at odds between God's will and his word and the will and word of the world and the people that were in charge around them. And it made for a hard life. If you took a stand for Jesus Christ, it made for a hard life. I believe that it's no coincidence that the Apostle Paul starts starts out his letter to the actual Romans with this opening statement. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter one verse one, and once I read that, I'll bring it back. And uh, as if you have any questions, Romans one verse one. Listen to the opening lines of the letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, "Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy Scriptures." concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, whom through we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ." To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see here the Apostle Paul making the point and reminding them who it is they're following, who it is that is in charge, who is the Son of God with power. No other resurrection on the planet documented as well as the resurrection of Jesus. No birth incident documented as well as the birth, the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ. No miracles documented as well as the miracles our Lord Jesus Christ performed on his earth to prove he was who he said he was. And that's why I say to you, if the devil had the power to duplicate the miracles that only the Messiah could do, Turn water into wine. Heck, we'd have vats of it in our backyard. To feed 5,000 with loaves and fishes, 25,000 actually. To walk on water and to be raised from the dead. I tell you, there would be somebody doing that every single day of the week. Why? To water down the significance of the of the miracles Jesus did so that Jesus would not be any different than anybody else. And so he's tried with the prophecies of the old testament he's grabbed those and said okay i'm going to start putting out a bunch of gods and goddesses that say the same thing oh they were all born of a virgin they all perform miracles but again where are they how did they survive they haven't survived what do we hear from them nothing but yet the bible remains as solid and firm the message of Jesus Christ, the story or the gospel of Jesus Christ remains solid and firm in a world that wishes it didn't exist. How do you like them apples? Okay, so in the letter to to the church at Thyatira, Jesus Christ does not designate himself as the son of man like he did when he was walking the earth. He comes as the almighty, glorified, and exalted son of God. Why? It is not his his humanity that this church needs to see him in right now. But as the bringer of divine and penetrating judgment, Christ's deity is emphasized. Not because he's coming to help them necessarily. He is coming as God to judge because of sin to judge because of sin. He's no longer that solely the sympathetic savior. He comes as a sovereign judge as we're going to see as we dig in the chapter 3 and 4 where we where where God sets up the you know heavenly courtroom and begins to litigate between those who honored the covenant, the old covenant and those who did not and then declare judgment and then declare what's going to be the consequences for everybody's actions, and then they will be rewarded according to their deeds. Now, what will this look like? Well, let's see if we can let the Apostle Paul explain it a little bit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. It'll be verse 14 to 21. So here, the Apostle Paul is following the footsteps of our Lord by bringing, you know, faith confronting sin where he sees it. So he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. This is the Apostle Paul writing. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So he brought them to Christ. He built that church. He, he, he planted that. Therefore, I exhort you to be imitators of me. For this re- reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remain remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you but i will come to you soon if the lord wills and i shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant but their power for the kingdom of god does not consist in words but in power what will you desire shall i come to you with a rod or with love or with a spirit of gentleness you see and so I use that example just to give you kind of an idea of the spirit of Christ coming in these letters to these churches. Just like Paul is saying, when I show up at the church, do you want me to come and rebuke you and admonish you? Or should I come with more gentleness and revelation and and, and just give you more of the love of Christ, more teachings of Christ? Uh, What would you rather I do? Discipline you or reward you? You see? And so this is what Jesus is. That's the position he is in here. Now, look here in in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 13. We're going to read that. It says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed will be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean that with the immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters for then you would have to be out of the world you'd have to go out of the world but actually i wrote for you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one for what i what have i to do with judging the outsiders i do not judge those uh, do you not judge those who are within the church for those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves." So you see, they had a very strong, strong approach and view, especially since the church was so new, it was so, uh, you know, just starting out, and they couldn't be have any of this stuff going on in there and just be, allow it to happen willy-nilly, just allow it to go on. So. It seems, it, when we read it to right now, as we're reading it, it seems awfully harsh. We wouldn't think of it. If we knew there was someone coming to our church that was committing, some, that, 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 that does some of these things, we would not, what would we say? Would we be like, you know, I'm not, not coming, I'm not going to associate with you, I'm not coming to church. You know, for us, it just it's a whole different mindset or mentality or world there. There is no that is, there isn't that level of accountability in today's world, and who would put up with it? The moment people started putting, you know, confronting that in the church, people would just go off on their merry way and leave. So it's up to each individual to decide for themselves what steps they're going to take to stay accountable, whether accountable to a fellow Christian, to another person, or to a pastor. And to allow those th- that pastor or that person or that that, per- that person in ministry or even if it's just a fellow Christian to say, Hey, you're on the wrong path. You're not doing right here. You're destroying yourself. You're ruining your witness. You're, you're, you're really, you know, you're, you're off the path. And for us to be willing to accept it. I have people like that in my life. And I've done that to other people to a certain extent. I mean, gosh, uh, you know, I'm the last person right, to be judging other people's everything, but when they're sitting there going, you know, I don't know what to do, I'm struggling, I'm I'm a mess, God doesn't love me, God doesn't, you know, then I can say, well, you know, what you're doing right now is keeping you out of his reach. You don't want to be where he can touch you, you don't want to be where he can admonish you, where he can discipline you even, or he can touch your life or move in your life to do what he needs to do in you so that you can turn around. And we are capable of doing that. We can keep ourselves outside of God's reach to do whatever we want to do and ignore his his word, ignore the Holy Spirit telling us, pounding us in the head. You know, but that's up to us. So, yeah, even if the rest of the world doesn't put up other Christians won't put up with that. We have to put ourselves in a, humble ourselves and put ourselves, each and every one of us have to decide to put ourselves in a place where we're willing to listen to that brother Christian, that sister Christian, or even the Christian message when you go to church and have, and say, okay, Lord, I get it. I understand. You're right. I'm doing something about it today. I've made that decision many times, many a Sunday, where I've had to say, okay, Lord, here's where it stops today. Not one minute longer. And I'll tell you, the freedom of driving away from church, having made those decisions and taken those steps to remove that ugliness from my life, have been glorious, freeing, beautiful, redeeming. So Jesus tells them, he continues and says, he comes with eyes like a flame. Just to remind them to remember that the eyes of Christ, the eyes of Jesus are everywhere. Everywhere and nothing is hidden from him. Everything is laid bare. Anything you think you might be hiding or getting away with, it's just not happening. It's just not happening. The flame in his eyes illuminates every hidden nook and cranny of his church. Of his church. And this is the glorious truth of heaven, but it's also the suffocating truth about hell. While our true natures are often buried under countless layers of lies, of hypocrisy, of deceptive appearances, hell will finally expose the true nature of all who have consistently rejected the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. We don't like to think of what we consider good people going to hell. But our impressions of people are not a reflection of what the truth is. If you truly believe there are so-called good people in the world, ask yourself this. Would anyone volunteer to have every single thought in their heads broadcasted instantaneously for the entire world to see every day of every year every minute of every day of every year would you volunteer for that do you know anybody who would volunteer for that to have their thoughts broadcasted the moment they happen instantaneously no filter no time lapse Nothing. The moment you think it, boom, it happens. The moment you say it, boom, or do it, boom, it happens. Who would volunteer for that? (laughs) I don't think one person on the planet would volunteer for that. It'd be a good show on Netflix, that's for sure. Romans chapter 2 tells us that there is no such thing. No such thing as an actual good person in existence. Now, I know what you're saying to me. I know good people, good people that do good things. But as good as God, as good as Jesus, as good as the measure is supposed to be that God sets for us, not one person on this planet can make it. But let's go ahead and read what Romans chapter 2 says. And I always show this to people that say, well, you know, what about all the good people You know, that die? What happens to them? Well, I say, who are those good people, you know? Who are those good people? Actually, it's Romans chapter 3. I'm sorry. Okay. And then we're going to start at verse 9. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. It says this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of ashes under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So I know that's a stunning indictment. And I know that we can all say we know people that are good people. They just don't follow God. Well, even good people are willful and rebellious. And they're willful and rebellious against God. I've heard other people say this, you know, do I need God to be a good person? Well, no. Not as you and I would define it. Because what I think is good isn't what you think is good. What you think is good isn't what people around you think is good. So everybody's got their idea And we can tend to agree for the most part of what those ideas are, set set them into laws and hope nobody hurts themselves. And yet people still do. But you do need God to define what good is. And it has to be a level of goodness above what can come just from ourselves. I can say, I can give you a whole list of things that I think is good and someone will come along and say some of those aren't good. Some of those are just not good. Well, then who gets to decide? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem we've had in humanity that uh, one human being says, this is good. The next one come along and says, no, this is and no, and we argue about it. And we might come to a general consensus so that we're not killing ourselves at least too much on the streets. It's still happening. But we need something beyond us to tell us what good is so that it's a universal Across the board and when God says, "Don't do this, we have to appeal to God as our source for that goodness so that we can t- say to somebody else, "Hey, don't do that. God doesn't want you to do that. Get the Ten Commandments, for example. what fault could you find in the Ten Commandments? If everybody lived the Ten Commandments, the s- society would be a much better place. If everybody lived the Sermon on the Mount it would be a much better place. But because of sin, you're either going to reject God's law, reject God as a person to begin with, reject God as, you know, believing in God, and then you're going to reject His word, and now we're surprised when you or me or somebody else gets to decide what good is based on what? And just because you can enforce it by law? And we've seen so many unjust laws put into effect and enforced why because we're flawed human beings doing you know some of us doing the best we can some of us taking advantage of the system but we need something beyond us to tell us what is right and wrong because we can't trust ourselves to come up with that and enforce it properly not fairly It's power, corruption, greed, manipulation, lies, deceit, take advantage of people, take advantage of the situation. We can't trust ourselves to do it right ourselves. That's why we need a judge, a measuring rod beyond human capability to be able to bring those laws to us and say, this is what is right and this is what is good. And so that's what I think the point that he's trying to make to the people here is, you know, people are running society, people are governing you, people are making rules. But there's their rule, their human rule, and then there's my command, God's command. And that, that is what's going to make the difference. This concludes part one of our lesson to the church at Thyatira. married the multiple gods. Please join us for part two. May God richly bless you, saints.